This is Framework Leadership. I'm Kent Engel, and you're listening to Framework Leadership, a podcast about how to bring your personal life and organization to the next level. Wow, today I'm sitting down with the founder of Wild Leaders Incorporated, Dr. Rob McKenna. Rob is the chair of industrial organizational psychology at Seattle Pacific University. Rob has coached thousands of leaders across corporate, not-for-profit, and university settings. His clients have included Boeing companies, Microsoft, Foster Farms, United Way, Alaska Airlines, and his latest book, Compose, The Heart and Science of Leading Under Pressure, is now out wherever books are sold. So we're grateful that you joined us today. Thanks. It's good to be here, Kent. Hey, there's so much I want to talk uh, to you about today, but I want to start with your early life. I want to talk about your career. Where did you grow up? What was family like? What was the environment, the setting, the context? So uh, I am the product of uh, parents who were in college presidency, college and seminary presidency for 33 years. And um, I know you know part of this story, but um, I was born in, in uh, Jackson, Michigan, near Spring Arbor University and moved to Seattle when my parents took there. My dad took the presidency at Seattle Pacific in 1968. So the first 14 years of my life, um, kind of those formative years where my, my folks in that role, and I think so much of that certainly had an impact on my emphasis on leaders today because my, I don't know if it was like a boardroom, but our, our dinner table when I was a kid, um, you know, all kinds of, if you can, if you can manage faculty, I think you can manage anyone and sure. I am, and being a faculty member myself, I know what I'm yes. talking about. And so I think it's just it's the, the realities of being in his role and, and my mom in her role just gave me a real, uh, real passion for um, trying to help leaders prepare for those, those challenging but awesome moments. Um, and it certainly has affected so many things about my career today. So you grew up uh, around education uh, and really, I'm sure, captured the value of educational stewardship in your life. When did you first begin having that interest in organizational development? You know, it's funny. I, I also have a, um, a brother who is 17 years older than I am and um, who was what's called, a, he's a differential psychologist. His training was in personality. And, uh, and he was, when you have a brother that you respect so much, who's a bit, a bit ahead of you. And he got into industrial organizational psychology, transitioning out of his focus on just psychology in general and, and, uh, and that. And so, um, having him mentoring me early on um, was something, certainly with my fascination with organizations and leadership was key. But then having my brother who at the time, like when I was in college, he had started to consult with a little software company um, in Redmond, Washington, Microsoft, which um, when he started there, I think there were 1,500 employees. By the time he left Microsoft, there were 110,000. And to be, um, I always tell, I tell students or people that I work with now, one thing my brother did is he just dragged me around. So I would go to these offsites um, and uh, and just watch what he would do, and I and it sort of opened up my eyes to this possibility that I could I could go deeper in my studies and working with leaders um, and and go out and try to get the best training I could in preparation for that, and so I can't I can't minimize the impact of him on just my uh, those moments of preparation, um, and and he still you know is one of my closest confidants and coaches mm -hmm. today. So. Now, talk, talk a little bit about what, what is industrial organizational psychology? When you, psychology, when you think about kind of the, the structure of what that is, you know, yeah. entails. Yeah, so <laughs> this will sound a bit pitchy, 
But when I describe it, um, I describe it as the most powerful guild in corporate America hmm. that you've never heard of. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the reasons is that the foundation of our, of our field is, um, are, is, are there selection and performance management. So when you think about major corporations, I think one of the reasons it's so influential is that people who have preparation and graduate training in our field end up running the selection processes. So who gets in the door? Um, and then also the performance management systems. So who, how they get evaluated once they're there. And people think that industrial organizational psychology is new that, by the way, it's also a hard thing to say, which I, right, I tell right, all the people right, in training, exactly. I say like, that's a good thing because it makes us sound <laughs> smarter than we are. Uh, but, uh, but it's, uh, and so for that reason, when you're thinking about people that are responsible and leading the processes for who comes in and how they're evaluated and motivated once they're there. And, uh, and that's what, that's what the field is, anything related to behavior in the workplace. So leadership, teams, culture, certainly selection, um, uh, all play or key parts. It's interesting now because of the heavy emphasis on research in the field. Um, a lot of the people that I have, the students that we have prepared end up being in big data and data analytics has become a really big area for us as well. So, um, yeah. Now you've, you've coached a lot of leaders and, and, in some of the most influential companies in the world, how how do you how do you step into the coaching career aspect of this, and and what are some of the key things you've learned from coaching in the process? Man, that's a good question. Um, so one of the things I would say this is probably a common thing, but as I kind of feel like I tripped into it, I never um, I never wanted to establish kind of the primary missional or economic engine of my work being executive coaching. But by default, because I've been interested in working with senior leadership teams, you can't help but coaching ends up being a part of that process. Um, and I would say that um, one of the things that I, I've learned, in, you know, any, any person that does this kind of work, you kind of have to learn what your one good talk or your one good sermon is when sure. you're working with people. So it's, they're going to leverage, you know, whether you're going to be known as a provocateur, someone who pushes, you know, a little bit of controversy or someone that's more of an affirmer, you know, and affirming people or firing people up. And I think what I hope is that I'm a, I'm a combination of, of both, um, both someone who's willing to ask the hard questions and, and also someone that hopefully would leave people in a better place than where I found them. And my, one of my focus has really been on, I, I talk about, um, the fact that I'm not that interested in leadership, but I am profoundly interested in leaders. And so it, it sort of, I'm not interested in talking about leadership, but what I'm really drawn to, and I can't help but be drawn to, I'm, Part of me is wired. I have kind of the heart of a therapist, even though I don't really want to be a therapist. And so when I look at a person, I think, so what is the reality of your role in your life? What does it look like? And how can we best support not only you making progress, but also helping the people around you? So um, that's kind of been where I have leaned. And, and, and I think probably through your passion, through your experiences like that, I think is what helped you to create wild leaders incorporated and, and created the wild leaders toolkit. Tell us a little bit about what that is and, and really the drive behind that. What's prompted this, this, uh, great tool. So, uh, the wild stands for when I was even, I, I had an executive coach at one point and, um, and we were trying to work through what the brand would be about. And she said, I think you should call it wild. And she said, it stands for whole and intentional leader development. And she said, that's you. You like things that are going to, that, that, that drive people into the necessary controversies in their own career and development organizations. So I think it's, it's kind of a wild thing. 
So why don't you go with that? And so that's what the organization is about. And one of the parts of our mission that I, you and I have had conversations about this in the past, but is that I'm, I'm driven by this belief that we need to develop, prepare, and scaffold the experience of, of people that have both courage and what we call in psychology efficacy and a sense of themselves, but also a willingness to sacrifice and a willingness to pay attention to the needs of the people, some of whom may be the most difficult people to pay attention to. In a world where so often the leadership model is kind of one side of that, where we build up people's convictions and courage, but we don't give them pathways to connect with other people and to listen to their stakeholders. And so this, it's just a simple concept, but how do we try to prepare leaders who do both? So we, uh, that's what Wild Leaders was established for. And then I also can't help but, you know, I'd go around and speak about this for years and people would say, this is amazing stuff. I'm inspired by what you said. Where's the way? Where's the tool? And, um, and I was also been involved in all kinds of different um, research studies. We did a six and a half year study inside the Boeing company called the Waypoint Project where we followed 120 leaders for six and a half years. We had 15,000 data points on these folks. And what we found is that their whole developmental journey was fairly complex. It involved a lot of moving parts. It wasn't just about what they were good at or just about, you know, whether it was their strengths or their experiences or their resumes. It was about all kinds of things related to their, their call, their purpose, um, their networks of support, um, the mission, the thing that they were trying to accomplish, their experience base. And so, what we did is I, I got inspired through all kinds of different research projects and coaching experience to develop a, a comprehensive toolkit that wouldn't be a one-off solution, but would capture the narrative of a person, but also give them a way to measure progress at the same time. So it's a wild concept, yeah, which ended right. up being the wild toolkit. Yeah. So we launched the second iteration of that, those tools last April, and it's been just amazing to see just how the impact so far. So. so when you talk about whole leader development, um, what would be some of the common areas leaders neglect in their development? You see this kind of across the board. Oh, man. Um, what would be some of the common areas? So one thing that first comes to mind is it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with um, people ask us all the time, like, who is your target audience? And I, I, what I say is that it's a kind of person um, a person who, like I said, has a, a sense of themselves, but is willing to edit. And I call it editability, that willingness to do what feels like hitting the backspace key on parts of themselves that they hold sacred. Um, and I would say one of the areas that people really need, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, a freshman in college or a senior executive, is the necessity for building a strategic network of support. Um, I learned this from... Uh, Kevin Johnson is a, a senior leader, you know, in corporate America today. And I heard this rumor that he every year documents his strategic network of support for where he's going. And I can't tell you how many senior leaders and college freshmen have never thought about literally documenting the people that will give them tough feedback, the people whose backs who have their back, the people whose shoulders that they could cry on if their world's falling apart, the people they'd call tomorrow if they were looking for a job. And so it's, it's one of those places where we all need that battalion that stands behind us when we take calculated risks as leaders. And I find that it's so isolating leadership roles that that's one of the areas that we find is it's, it's certainly, it's one of many, it's a whole process that I think about, but it's certainly one of those things that comes up all the time. 
an area that always fascinates me uh, when I when I study and spend time with uh, leaders who've had great success. Uh, it's it, a lot of it has to do with relational intelligence or uh, emotional intelligence. How how does that play in whole leader development? So uh, this is this kind of it's a it's a it's a hint into my book. Um, but one of the things that I have spent a lot of my career studying and speaking on and working with leaders on is that um, when we when we studied leaders, what we found is that there was a fundamental tension that they all would describe. There was one leader I would meet with every year um, who had managed you know a, a multi-billion-dollar business. It was government-level work, and when you got into the details of the experiences that he had had, some of which were very public and. Uh, national news stuff that you and I both are aware of. One of his fundamental challenges was maintaining a sense of himself. So how do I stay true to what's important to me and stay connected to what's important to the most important stakeholders in my world, my work or my life. And so I'm listening to this senior leader with his incredible influence and power, just financially speaking, who was struggling with a very basic human thing. And, uh, and it relates to that whole concept of emotional intelligence uh, because we couldn't find leadership models that could capture the emotional complexity of what he was describing. So one of the best places that we found was in marriage and family therapy, believe it or not, that family systems theorists had done some of the best work on systemic level solutions to systemic level problems related to emotion. Um, and so we developed a whole model around that. One of the tools in the wild toolkit is called the leading under pressure inventory, um, which is all, which is focused on how do I, how do I do those two things at once and what strategies could I use to be better under the, the situations that where I need the most composure. And so that's, I don't know if that answers your question, yeah. but it's just, it's certainly close to my heart. Now, let me ask you this. There are a lot of leadership coaches who believe that leadership is an inherited trait that you either have, or maybe you don't have it. What do you think about that? Can, can leadership be taught or is it something that's kind of ingrained in the design of a person's life? Yeah. So, so what I do, Kent, is I, when I, my, our, our first year graduate students come in the first day of class and they, they you know, they're amazing people have been selected for this process and they, but they're scared to death. First thing, the question I ask them is, do you believe leaders are born or made? And so then I have them work for about 30 minutes on their answer. And this is what's horrible that I do. Um, and then after they finish, they all present. And then I say this to them, I don't care what you think yet. And I tell them that there is a mountain of research out there on this question. And so it's my way of saying, get into the literature to answer the question. But at the same time, realize that many of the clients that they'll deal with, the senior executives, will have a built-in assumption about the answer to it. So the fact is, is that, well, the research-based uh, findings would suggest that there are a lot of things about leadership that are fairly trait based certain predictors of people's especially when it comes to emergence or effectiveness um, somewhere between 30 and 50 percent sometimes the traits are powerful but what's interesting about that is that means that seven you know 50 to 70 percent of it is up for grabs and so when we talk with people about the wild toolkits we have a personality inventory it's a trait based inventory inside the toolkit but the rest of the toolkit is focused on that other part of the percentage. What is it that people can change? Um, and I would say this, a lot of the research, uh, I think about Carol Dweck's work on, on learning mindsets, um, would indicate not just her work, but a lot of other people, that part of it is also how you think about the question itself. Your belief, um, people want to believe that leaders are, are made, but a lot of times their actual assumptions will assume is that I need to get the right talent 
you know, and the door. So I, it, obviously it's a combination of the two. Um, but I would say that most of my emphasis has been on the developmental side. What are the things about us that we can shift around and edit that might be good for us or for other people? You've done a lot of work uh, in, into the sacrifice that leaders have to make. Talk a little bit more about what that means and what kinds of sacrifices. Um, so one of the challenges of working, I think it's, I say challenge, but also also awesome opportunity when you work with senior leaders i don't know why i go there because a lot of the i work with so many folks who have seen certain things work for so long and so um whenever you're asking them to do something different than their mo or what it is that uh, what i describe as their habitual ways of responding <laughs> in different situations it's really asking them to be willing to edit things that they hold sacred in some way like things that they're not sure they want to sacrifice. So for example, um, you know, some leaders that I work with who are a little bit more reluctant to lead, who are going to enter into some leader, significant leadership role. I tell them, you need to speak up. Like I, I want to help develop your convictions. And I, I realize that you're going to think people are mad at you when you speak up, but I can't hear you yet. And so for, for them, the sacrifice is actually being willing to put aside how other people feel long enough to, for people to see their convictions. And I, when, I, when I coach my kids' teams, I tell them conviction is defined by, it, it's showing up like you mean it, you know? But the other sacrifice is that I'll tell another, another kind of leader who maybe has too much voice, I'll, I, you know, this is funny because the first group does not understand what I, what I say to this other leader. I'll say, uh, you need to shut up. And what's funny is the leader who needs to shut up typically will say to me, I know. You know, they don't take it personally. They're just like, I, I've been told, I, I'm trying to figure that out because I feel like I'm, I'm paid to speak, you know, my convictions. And so they don't take that personally. It's just, um, and so, but it will feel the sacrifice oftentimes for them will be that there's, there's a sense in which if they stop talking, that they're not doing their job, you know? So it's, it feels like it's a compulsion to speak and, uh, and just giving them, uh, that's the sacrificial component I think is, I think the other part of it is even investing in the development of others takes a sacrifice when there's, there's so many things that we could get done with the time that we're going to spend developing the people who work for us or with us. And so that's part of the other process I think that is missing in so many leaders is just that they've never had a way to see their people more quickly. Um, and so that's one of the things that we built a system around. We call it the people investment plan. It's just a simple way for leaders to have a way to see the people that work for them with them more quickly. What would be, I mean, I mean, that, uh, there's so many sacrifices that leaders have to make. What do you think is the one sacrifice that most leaders have to make they don't necessarily realize that going into it? Would it be that investment piece or what's the one that they just, they don't realize that's, that's something that's going to happen in their leadership and their journey? Oh man, I, um, I was with uh, some of your leaders this morning and I show this, this slide that has this, uh, all these different kinds of, it's a funny slide, but it was, it was giving them an example of how different people are. And, uh, and especially when you're working with leaders. And so when you say what's most common, I, I just, the immediate thing that came to mind is there's a, there's a leader that I respect so much and have worked with over the years. And he and I were having a conversation about his next, like what is his next big thing? And he's now a CEO, one of the, a well-known CEO in the world today. And I, I had a conversation with him that was almost a deal breaker for our friendship. I felt like that anyway, because I, sometimes I'll just say things to leaders that I respect so much, but I'm kind of saying like, this is what I feel. 
And he had this goal of having a home in Hawaii. And I asked him, I said, would you be willing? But he also had this goal of his impact and how he might serve in the world. And I said, would you be willing to sacrifice the home in Hawaii to get there? And, and to be honest, it kind of, it ruffled the, fr- the feathers of our friendship for a couple of years um, until we were able, we had a conversation later about how important that conversation was. It's interesting when you're in, when you've lived long enough, you're in it for the long play with your friends. And so I think for him, it wasn't really about the home or the prosperity. It was about sacrificing something that he felt like, I, it's okay for me to want this. Why are you questioning that? Um, but I, the other thing that is so, you know, growing up in a home uh, with parents who were very public in a, in a generation where it wasn't okay, I, there were moments where I'm kind of amazed that my parents were able to avoid some of the major speed bumps that come, in, come into play when you're in a senior leadership role. Because the sacrifices that they made that no one will ever know about you know, is what is so profound to me. No one will ever know, um, but that I knew about. Um, and so I think some of the, th- the crazy thing is some of the sacrifices are invisible. We don't even know some of the people who have stood up for us, you know, over the years. One, one other question before I, I want to talk about your latest book. Um, leaders facing um, criticism and the psychology of that in, in the way they lead in the midst of that Mm -hmm. because we're living in a dynamic obviously in in our nation's leadership where you see i mean massive uh criticism and and then maybe even the way some of those leaders respond and how they respond how how does that affect a leader and how Mm -hmm. should it affect a leader yeah one of the things that i mentioned this morning uh, when I was with some of the leaders here was um, I was just talking about how difficult some of that is and the preparation for that moment. And I think, you know, one of the things that my dad would say, it's funny how you have these things from your childhood when you have a dad like mine just passed. And he said, Rob, be careful how you read your own press clippings. And he was, you know, he was talking about both sides of that is I think the criticisms, but also um, the parts that might build your ego up too far. And it's, it's uh, I think one of the pieces that is so challenging and tricky is, is how do you continue to listen to the voices that are, I mean, I, and I, I look at people in roles like you have, and of course my heart is drawn to people who are in those roles because, but I also have found myself to be more someone who I want to come around those kinds of folks. And one of the key factors is back to what you mentioned before, I cannot help but just highlight how important it is for leaders to sit down, take the time, the intentional moment to figure out who's surrounding them. Because, uh, and it's, it's both for the feedback and the support because it is so tremendously isolating when you step out and go first. Um, and so just encouraging them and also to get support that's outside of their existing network. Um, when I work with someone who, let's say someone works inside Alaska Airlines their network needs to be beyond those walls. And so often, if, especially if they've got long tenures, they don't have that. Um, so I hate to be redundant about that, but it's the first thing that came to mind is how, how lonely and isolating it can be when you start to get that kind of feedback and then figuring out which, which part to listen to and which part to, to really continue to push forward. Um, yeah, so critical. Your latest book, uh, Compose, The Heart and Science of Leading Under Pressure, focuses the specific strategies leaders can use to stay true to themselves and 
connected to others when it matters most. So tell us how, how can leaders work well under pressure? Yeah. So man, the first question I get asked is what is pressure? And you know, I've, I've been asked that for years. And so the book gave me a chance to break that down. I always describe it like, you know, when an airplane takes off I and mean, we don't even think about this anymore, but it's, you know, you can't see the pressure, but you know, it's happening. Um, and I think it's, it's that your ears pop, you know, you get pushed back in your seat, you can feel the tilt, but you can't see it. And I think that leaders experience pressure the same way. Um, and what, what I have found is that when you're talking about someone's ability to compose themselves and do the two things that you just described, the challenge is that you're, you're talking to two different kinds of people, people that I describe in the book as some folks, their leadership challenges that they're, this is kind of on the extreme, but they're peacekeepers. Sometimes I describe them as peace mongers. And those are people that are tremendously connected to people, um, but they struggle when the pressure comes up because they think it's all about making everybody happy. And then on the other side, you've got true speakers. Uh, and those are folks who lead with their convictions, but under pressure, their habit's gonna be to just to kind of run free and without everybody else. So it's uh, what's interesting, Ken, and I, I, there is a secret sauce. So even since, and I did document this in the book as well. The book is a pretty simple, I, my hope is also that it's a simple read. Um, I love to write books that are approachable yet ask some of the hard questions. So all the book does is it sets up this foundation of which way do you go? And then what we studied with now populations of thousands of leaders across all kinds of different contexts is what are the strategies that have allowed them to maintain their themselves and their connection to others to be this best composed version of themselves when the, when the greatest pressure comes. And, and in our research, we did find that there was a secret sauce. Now, I don't want anyone to minimize the other strategies, but we looked at, we wanted to find out which one was most powerful. And so, so if I could share the recipe, um, the number one predictor of a person's ability to emotionally self-regulate under pressure was sense of purpose. The extent to which someone understood why they were in it in the first place with, with, with specificity. His purpose was this am amazing driver. The second variable and most powerful strategy was focusing on potential. So it was the extent to which someone could see possibility in the midst of tremendous barriers. And it worked particularly well for people who took things personally, which is most of our population, <laughs> most of our sample. Right, right. So like most people do take things quite personally, but if they knew where they were going and why, and they also had a high focus on potential, it had this unbelievable uh, effect on their ability to stand in the midst of the storm. So it's just, it's, uh, it's been really fun talking about it. And the other strategies are really powerful. And depending upon someone's makeup, we get deeper into that. But And speaking of pressures, what, what would be the most common pressures? Or the, maybe the top three? Um, uh, multiple stakeholders who want different things. Um, one of the, and I think one of the most common pressures I've seen, and this is amazing because people think that people who have a lot of seasoning and senior experience, leader experience wouldn't fear, feel this, but the pressure to please everyone, like that everyone's watching. Um, and then certainly I, I can't avoid this, but um, the reality of the contextual pressure, I talk in the book about certain things that are happening around us versus within us. And I think both are always at play, but certainly the, um, I think there the complexities of things like finances. So sometimes, you know, a, a lot of uh, leadership development is about the invisible stuff. You know what I mean? I do, I, I do a lot of work with leaders around things they can't see, but the equal pressure and we did with wild leaders, we describe that as the heart stuff. 
you know, what they're passionate about, their motivations, uh, emotions of other people, their own emotions. But then there's all the things you can. And I think you, you combine those things with things like financial pressure. Um, presidents who walk into jobs where they, they couldn't have asked all the questions. They don't realize that the university that they stepped into can't play, pay its milk bills in its cafeteria. You know what I mean? This right, happens right. all the time. Right. And you layer those things on top of, of a family life. And there's some research out about ministers, uh, people in ministry that half of all seminary graduates leave ministry within five years of graduation. And it, I'm not minimizing these things, but it's not because they didn't get enough Greek right. in school. You know what I mean? Or people that, but no one, even business students so often aren't prepared for what's it going to be like to fire somebody that I care about. Um, so as uh, a longer story than the three, but and, it's just, you know. and you mentioned, you mentioned family. And I know that a lot of leaders find themselves constantly bringing pressure uh, of work home with them. Uh, is that healthy? And how, how can people keep their work pressure out of personal family life? That man, even, even just the way you said that is this, it's full of controversy, right? So is that the job? Um, I would say that, uh, it's just a part, it's funny when you run an organization that kind of is your mission. And one of the things that we are about providing is intention, intentionality around maybe not separating or maybe separating if it works for a while. But this, this idea that if we could be more intentional about where we're showing up in different parts of our life, that it could allow us to function more whole. Um, where I talked to a leader a few weeks ago that I've done some coaching with and I asked him, I said, how are things going? And if you looked at him from the outside, you'd say, this is an executive. You would think he's got it all together. And he said, I said, how are, what's described to me what things feel like. And he said, I've never felt more disconnected in my life. And, uh, and so we just started to have a conversation around what would it look like if your life were more whole, if you could connect those parts in an intentional way where you could be making choices about, life as they relate to work and work as it relates to life because all of these pieces matter to you and figuring out how to what to say yes to what to say no to where to delegate just some basic stuff um to figure out maybe it may not be about integration for everybody but figuring out how to manage the whole life because these things are affecting us across the boundaries all the time you know and so yeah what you describe oftentimes breaks my heart it's it's uh, the challenges they're facing Last question before we move into that lightning round. What would be your last piece of advice for leaders who are wanting to bring themselves and their organizations to the next level? They want to break through. What's new? What's next? Yeah, one of the, um, I think, you know, back, I can't help but lean on that, what I just mentioned. Figure out why you're in it. I think so often we minimize the, the purpose part. Um, and, and so often, some leaders have not given themselves permission to pause and say, why is this important? And not only for them, but people are inspired by that. And then what I, I describe is then if you figured out why you're in it and for whose sake, then what do you want? You know, if someone, if someone has that sacrificial character and they're willing to edit, now I'm in it with them. Now I want to know, what do you want? And I, and I think so many leaders, especially when they're getting launched or they're even through their mid career, struggle with permission to describe that because there are bold, like bowl you over kind of leaders everywhere. People follow conviction. And so if we could get some people who are willing to change, but gave themselves permission 
or felt a sense of like people need that from us to know where are we going and why and then p- folks can make their own choices about whether this is the right ride for them <laughs> you know that's good yeah all right let's move into lightning round oh. these are quick fast answers <laughs> first one i got four of them for you first one what's the last great book you read or podcast you've listened to last great great pot this one <laughs> uh, last great book i read oh this is going to sound like a, i'm flattering him but uh my dad's latest book is uh is pretty good and it's all about it's called the the uh the posterity gospel ah. and it's and it's it's an awesome title and it's not about prosperity but it's about thinking so what are we really about and it's it's one of his best he's written like 45 books he's gonna correct me and say like 46 son <laughs> but yeah I, I loved my dad's latest book <laughs> All right, you have a day off, your calendar's cleared, and you've been mandated Come to on. have a perfect day off. What does that day look like for you? Oh, this is good. So uh, if I'm at home, I'm getting up, I'm getting out the grill, and I'm going to cook for my family. We're going to have uh, some sausage. We're gonna, I'm going to make pancakes. We're going <laughs> to gather around what we did this last Saturday, and we watched an episode of Survivor. Uh, then I'm going to play two hours of Call of Duty because I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged, but I'm still pretty darn good <laughs> at the game. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to spend time with my boys in the afternoon, uh, getting a chance to hang out throw a ball, um, or just kind of figure out what's important to them, teach them how to change a battery in a car. And then I'm going out for a date with my wife. Wow. Sounds like a great day. <laughs> Is that lightning enough? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what historical leader living or dead would you most like to have coffee with? Oh man. Oh, that is a good one. Um, I'm kind of fascinated a bit by Eisenhower. I'd like to understand Ike. I, there was a part of him that was a bit of a people pleaser. And I'd like to understand how he navigated that with such a massive burden. So uh, he's someone that kind of fascinates me recently. Final question. What's your next big dream you want to accomplish? Man, Kent, um, I would like to see um, thousands of leaders all over the globe engaging with the wild toolkit and and the reason why is because i've seen the power of people bringing their whole narrative um to bear on their lives and i've seen the power of intention and that's not a big sales pitch i just i would love to see um i would love to see that happen i have this other weird vision this is not lightning but um i've always said i want to i want people that have come around this vision i want us on the cover of fast company magazine and I want the title of that article to say, all we did was focused on the one. All we did was think about the experience of what it means to be that leader. And we prepared a person for that moment. And I don't know if that's, that's just a weird thing. Wow. And I don't want it to be just wild. I don't want it to be wild leaders, team members who work for the bit. I want it to be all of us who have said like, we're going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Rob, who is a great friend. Thanks for joining us on Framework Leadership today. You can check out the Wild Leaders Toolkit at wildleaders.org. You can also pick up Rob's latest book, Compose the Heart and Science of Leading Under Pressure, wherever books are sold. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Leadership at its core is about making progress toward an intended destination, a destination that is new and different and someplace you've never been before. You know, you're not leading if you're repeating the same thing over and over and over again. And if you're going to lead yourself and others, then you must understand that uncertainty and risk, surprises will meet you along the way to your destination. 
I think too many people want the glory of leadership without factoring the guts required even to begin the journey. I can't tell you the number of times I've been faced with a situation and had no idea how it was going to work out. The bigger the organization, the higher you go, the more complex the challenges you're going to face. And at that moment, when that challenge becomes real, you won't know how it's all going to work out. But you do know that with a solid framework, a strong team, and the courage to move forward, you will overcome whatever you're facing right now and whatever you will face as you progress. Here are some of the ideas I know that have helped me move forward when sometimes the path wasn't exactly clear. I think one of the things that has to happen is you have to go back to your passion story. Why are you doing what you're doing in the first place? Do you still believe what prompted you to begin? Can you still visualize where you want to be, what you want to accomplish? This is your foundation and it needs to be strong. I think secondly, build a framework. When you can't be sure about what's ahead, you have to go, you know, let go of the security of a destination and lean into the strength of a proven framework, a framework that will ensure you are aligned and integrated with your thinking. I think you need to find a mentor. You know, the creator designed you and me to live in community with each other. You need an outsider's perspective to ensure you're thinking clearly and are well aware of your blind spots along the way. Also, I think give yourself permission to fail. The pressure to get it right the first time can be so great that it can paralyze you. Don't let that happen. And I think a final thing, at least for me, is in the midst of all that you're facing, have fun. Seriously, life and leadership shouldn't be serious and intense all the time. Embrace the risk. It's the soul of adventure and the biggest adventure of your life. You can move forward even when the path isn't clear. Even if you have to work yourself up and leap, the great paradox is the biggest risk is not in moving forward. It's just staying still. The world around you is always shifting. The only safety and security you'll ever know when you're reaching for something that doesn't yet exist. Hey, I'm Kent Engel. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership Podcast. To connect with Kent, visit kentingle.com. Also make sure to follow him on Twitter at Kent Engel and on Facebook at kent.ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership.